Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. went away a second time and prayed. I drink it. May your will be done.
When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. comes my betrayer. While he was still. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome again to TCC. Just wondering if Gio is here this morning. Gio, are you here? Right here. Gio, somebody? No? Okay. I wanted to say farewell to them because this is the last Sunday that they're going to be with us. Uh, and uh, they are heading out to Kelowna. They are, they're from Brazil. Uh, oh, they're back there. They're back there. Oh, thank you for standing up, uh, uh, Gio and Lucy and uh, Petro and, uh, and Jacqueline. And this is their last Sunday, and we want to bid you farewell. Uh, you've been with us for a year uh, from Brazil, and uh, now you're off to Kelowna. We hate to send you over to Kelowna, but we'd love to keep you here. Uh, so thank you for blessing us. We have people from uh, 30 different countries of the world, and, and it's always a thrill to have somebody come in from another country and bless us. So uh, farewell to you folks, and God bless you. Thank you. Let's give them a big hand. Well, we're in a series uh, that is uh, leading us to the cross and uh, to the resurrection. And uh, heart shaping is, is our theme. God is shaping the hearts of uh, his followers as we journey with him and we see how incredibly well he has loved us and how incredibly well he has provided for us. This morning, as you uh, have seen the text uh, visually, uh, Matthew 26, 36 to 46, you know, the danger of... of uh, uh, speaking on a familiar text is that we all kind of say, well, I know that text and I, I've read that so many times and it's, it's so familiar that perhaps we fail to see it with fresh eyes. And I pray this morning we'll be able to see it with new eyes, fresh eyes of what God wants to say to us today. Uh, he's not old at all. In fact, we would say uh, not even middle-aged. And he's carried a lot in his 33 years. A single adult, no place to call home for over three years. He's gathered his men around him and they have had one final supper together. Roast lamb, a loaf of bread, some wine, a hymn, and he walks out into the dark. 
and by now the night is well spent. They no doubt walked through the eastern gate, making their way in the direction of Bethany. Now, if you go from Edmonton uh, east, you will come to Sherwood Park. If you go from Jerusalem and you go east, you will come to Bethany. Somewhere between Edmonton and Sherwood Park, or in the biblical world, between Jerusalem and Bethany is a place called Gethsemane. Across the Kidron Valley, the beautiful Mount of Olives, and there is a beautiful space on a hillside known as the oil press, or as we refer to it, Gethsemane. Beautiful olive trees adorn the landscape. They've been there for a long time. Some olive trees have been classified as living over 2,000 years. You can still see them today. And from the Mount of Olives, you can overlook the magnificent city of Jerusalem. And Jesus walks to the Garden of Gethsemane with a broken heart. He was the man of sorrows that Isaiah 53 talked about. His grief was raw. It was an awful time. It was, it was downright terrible. And yes, I suppose in some ways it was the best of times. Didn't Charles Dickens say it so well in A Tale of Two Cities? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Best of times for what God was doing through Jesus Christ to redeem a fallen world. But the worst of times for Jesus as he prepares himself for what is just about to come. Jesus had known his whole life that this moment was going to come. But yet knowing it didn't change his feelings. And knowing it didn't make it easier. Have you ever waited for something that was going to be tough? Have you ever waited for major surgery? You know it's coming. But then you get bumped in the surgery schedule. You're so relieved when you get bumped for just a short time and then you know it has to be rescheduled again. You have to prepare yourself all over again. And Then finally comes the day when you have to get in the car and you have to drive to the hospital and you know it was coming and it is hard and yet you know you must. It is not a worthy comparison but that is the walk to Gethsemane and that was Jesus. The time has come for something so major in his life. So major that we can't grasp it fully. And his life was filled with pain. His grief and pain was so extreme that he almost died. He almost died from grief alone. He is called the man of sorrows. You follow his life, and you can sometimes see his sorrow, like when he weeps at the grave of Lazarus. Why was he weeping at the grave of Lazarus? Because he knew that Lazarus would rise again, but he was seeing the impact of sin and death upon the world. He was visualizing what was only weeks away for himself. 
the Lord knew sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow because of who he was and because of his heart and his mission for the world. And friends, as we read the text in Matthew 26, we can read the words, but I'll tell you this morning, I can't get it. I can't get it. I can't feel it. I can't understand it. I mean, I get the words, but I can't, I can't seem to get the profound nature of the suffering of Jesus Christ. He is a man of sorrow. He's a man of pain. And Jesus wanted to know if anything could be done. Could there be something done that would avoid the overwhelming barrage of pain in his life? Gethsemane really was an integral part of the cross. Just not the physical suffering, but the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath was overwhelming. But this is why he'd come. He had come to suffer. He came, he came to die. And all of this had to do with pain. The four-letter word that we try to escape from. Some of you here this morning, I know, are going through intense pain. It's hard to even put it into words. And you probably wonder... Is there anyone who could meet you at your crossroad of suffer, suffering and minister to you? Is there anyone? There is one. And you will see who he is in Gethsemane. Because he's a man of pain. He's a man of pain. Pain's a part of life. I know, I know we all try to eliminate pain as much as we can. Don't we find ourselves trying to eliminate it? It's our natural reaction. Who wants it? We come into the world in some pain. We come crying. Doctors tell us that the more the baby cries at birth, the healthier the baby probably is, especially in the development of those lungs. And mom has pain at childbirth. She cries too. And uh, dad is standing beside, and he's a basket case too. Not sure why he's crying, but he's crying too. You know, there's a little video clip out. You've got to watch it. I, you can just Google it. Uh, and and it's, this, it's this, yeah, I think you already get it. This, this, yeah, there you got it. Uh, these two guys uh, who, uh, who have these electrodes uh, attached to their abdomens, which simulate contractions and what their wives went through during labor. And, uh, you know, I, someday we'll show that video. Um, but at the end of the video, uh, these men address their moms on camera as heroes, and they say, that was a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. And what they thought was kind of going to be seven on the pain scale, they said, no, that's only four. So uh, a couple of guys appreciate it. And as the child grows, they encounter pain. All the scrapes and bruises. I mean, if, if you have young children, you know it all too well. If you have teenagers, you're also seeing the pain. It's, it's often a world of being uh, self-conscious and being easily embarrassed. It's, and it's not just physical pain, but there is the, the world of emotions. And there's pain for some growing up with parents who didn't protect them, or in fact who abused them. And they're now growing up and they're experiencing the pain of 
getting healthy. And they're getting some help. Uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book uh, quite a few years ago now, and it was called Where is God When It Hurts? And he suggests that Christians don't know how to interpret pain. We think it was uh, God's one mistake. God, why did you bring pain into this world? Why in the world did you allow this to us to have to experience pain? And it's true, we do what we, we need what we think we have to do to take care of the pain in our lives, even if it means drugs or booze or some kind of living that distracts us from the suffering. It's just kind of, let's get rid of the pain. Let's get, let's get that taken care of. And strangely enough, God has designed pain to help us. I know that's crazy, but it is the road that, that keeps us coming back to Christ. It is humbling. It makes us dependent. None of us like it, but amazing how God uses it. We're in constant need of God in our lives. We can't make it without Him. We learn that when our pain is so present that we're weak and He's strong and He understands every pain. He understands all of the suffering and all of our hurt and He gets it. He gets it. And Jesus had it too. Oh, how he carried pain. And he taught us to surrender in Gethsemane. So I'd like us just to learn a couple of things from the life of Jesus here in Gethsemane. Here's what Jesus needed, and I expect that this is what we need too. Number one, we need supportive friends, our supportive people. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. We all have our Gethsemanes, uh, perhaps uh, multiple Gethsemanes, and you can't always predict when they're going to come your way. But when they do come your way, you need some people around you to support you and to pray for you. Your, your Gethsemane may be yet ahead of you. Uh, maybe you've just come through one. But I tell you that they're common to all. The beauty of a Gethsemane is to have someone go to the garden with you. Jesus had his 11 men. Judas was now gone. He told them to sit here while I go to another uh, location close by to pray. And so he separated out the three men, Peter, James, and John, and he positioned them a little bit closer, and then he told them what he was going through and that his grief was at the point of death. And so he said, just be there and watch with me. Just be there and watch with me so you enter not into temptation. Just, I just need you there. I need you. And I tell you, if you've ever been in a valley like this, you know the joy of having some people in your life who are there for you. They give you a great big bear hug at times. They put an arm around your shoulder. They look you in the eye, and they assure you. And in Gethsemane, you need a phone call. You need a text. You need an email. You need someone to get on the plane if necessary and come. You need somebody to sit beside you and put their hand on your hand. And when people are getting close to the end, what means the most to them is that somebody's there. Even if they're fading in and out of a coma. 
Please don't go. I need you to sit with me. Just stay. And after Jesus prayed, he came back to his disciples and he found them asleep. He said to Peter, could you not watch with me even one hour, Peter? I need you. In verse 43, Jesus checks in with them a second time. He found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. He comes back a little later a third time and he says, go ahead and sleep, get your rest. The time has come. And your heart pains for Jesus because his men were so sleepy. Not that they didn't have good reason. I mean, they were exhausted emotionally as well. Uh, that whole Judas fiasco in the upper room, that was, that was gut-wrenching. And, and the talk of Jesus' death, and then the late hour of walking to Gethsemane. I mean, it's midnight. They were all done. They were done. They were emotionally done. They were physically done. You know, and there's no place more alone than one's own Gethsemane. And because of the rush of the world and the drowsiness of our mind and hearts, and the lack of awareness, there are many who suffer in silence. But here is a man, the man of sorrows, who understands Gethsemane. And I have to tell you this. Now the risen Christ understands your pain too. Because he's been there. He is there with you in your Gethsemane and he gets it and he loves you and if you listen closely you will hear him saying I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, I was touched by a beautiful story this week that I read. A young mom had come to the end of herself uh, just with an awful disease and she said I could no longer fight others had tried to help doctors and nurses and husband and children and she said I've been sick for a long time and all the tests oh, they were awful but my symptoms worsened she said I, I she said I sat in the bathroom in the middle of the night in a hospital connected to my IV, which was beeping. And she said, I sat there, dull and miserable and in pain and with no hope. And it was while I was there that I did hear something else. I didn't hear it with my ears, but I did hear it in my spirit. I heard someone crying. And I immediately I knew that it was Jesus crying for me. I was shocked. Totally surprised. I didn't think he would do that for me. And she said, nothing changed in my physical health. But it did change. It did change. I now knew I was really not in this battle alone. Jesus cared for me in a way that my wildest imagination would have never hoped for or expected. And she writes, I got up slowly, I shuffled back to bed, my IV still trailing behind me, still beeping in my ears, and life was the same, but different, different entirely. I believe that Jesus at that time made intercession to the Father for me.
and where there was absolutely no one else in the world that could help me, he cried for me. He cried for me. And I tell you, I did recover. I did recover. And I'm saying thank you to Jesus today. See, in Gethsemane, we need people. And in our Gethsemane, we need people and Jesus. We need people and Jesus. Secondly, surrendered hearts. In Gethsemane, we're brought to a place of surrender. He went on a little farther and he bowed with his, his face to the ground praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done. Not mine. When we come to the deeply trying experiences of life, we search for another way. We wonder if perhaps we didn't miss a simple solution. You know, am I making this harder than it ought to be? And the cup is a, the symbol of a great painful ordeal. Actually, he's probably not talking about the cup itself. Most likely what he's, he's talking about is in the cup. It's what's in the cup? What is Jesus asking the Father to take away? He wasn't asking him to take away death. He wasn't afraid to die. I'm not saying he was looking forward to it. Not, don't misunderstand me. But he wasn't afraid to die. Perhaps there would be sweet release to be free from the physical body. And to be sure, it was an awful death. In the coming weeks, and especially on Good Friday, we're going to be reminded of the physical pain. It was beyond words to describe. But Jesus wasn't saying, I can't take that physical pain. What was in the cup that was so agonizing for Jesus? That as Luke says, he sweat great drops of perspiration like drops of blood. What was in the cup? What was in the cup was Jesus being made sin. He saw himself being made sin. The pure, spotless Lamb of God was going to be made sin. He had never known sin. And to have God the Father place upon him all the sin of the world was more than he could possibly bear. He was pure. And as he looked into the cup, he recoiled that he would bear the ugliness of sin beyond description. The demons of hatred and greed and lust and anger and murder and jealousy and gossip and slander and filth and cheating and falsehood and profanity and abuse and pornography and torture. He saw it all. He saw the cesspool of all of this junk and he knew it was coming to rest on him. And he would stand before the Father with all this junk on him. And he would bear it. And the Father would turn his back on him. And he would bear it all alone. That's what was devastating. He saw himself as the object of God's wrath. Such a thing was the cruelest, most agonizing thing that could ever happen because this is Jesus, the Son of God, one with the Father and one with the Spirit. And when he looked inside the cup, he shrunk back and he said, 
God, there has to be a different way. There's got to be a different way, doesn't there? Is it possible? Is it possible we could figure this out? There must be another way. And yet, I want your will to be done. He was struggling in his humanity to come to a place of complete submission. I mean, we understand something of that on a far different scale. Wilbur Chapman was an evangelist in America a hundred years ago. One time he was in England and he was visiting William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. William Booth was renowned for his incredible spiritual life and power. And Wilbur Chapman said to him, I want to know the secret of your spiritual life. How, how do you do this? What is it? And Mr. Booth hesitated for a second and he, Chapman said, I saw a tear come down his eyes run down his cheeks and he said this I'll tell you the secret God has had God has had all there was of me there have been men with greater brains there have been men with greater opportunities he said but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart in a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God could have all of William Booth there was. And if there's anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it's because God has had all the adoration of my heart. Yeah, that's it. In Gethsemane, we are brought to a place of surrender. And we experience the resistance. What a process for Jesus to surrender again to God. I mean, this wasn't new for him. This was the reason he had come. But oh, the struggle of his humanity. I kind of like the words of William Hendrickson as he wrote about the humanity and divinity of our Savior. He wrote, Never shall we who do not even know how our own soul and body interact be able to grasp how the human nature of Christ in these solemn moments related itself towards the divine or vice versa. Did we get this right? Isn't there another way, Father? <clears throat> I can't bear to be separated from you. I can't imagine, <clears throat> imagine being cut off from you. Oh, God. Oh, God, how terrible. The garden of submission. The place where he fought it through. He prayed. He said, but I, but I want, Lord, but I want, but I want. And then he said, oh, but, but what you want. So ignore my will and let's do it your way. Not my will, but thine be done. So what do we need in the garden? We need some great friends. We need supportive people. And then we need a submissive heart to the Father's will. And then thirdly, persevering hearts. We also need persevering hearts. Have you discovered that a submissive heart doesn't happen with one little prayer? Isn't it a process? Don't you wish the biggest issue of your life could be resolved with a one little prayer? 
It may start with a statement, you know, I need to pray about that biggie in my life. But is a 20-second prayer to God going to take care of it? (laughs) Rarely in my life does it work that way. There are a lot of layers of stubbornness to work through. True submission to God is not immediate. It takes some perseverance and some persistence. And Jesus prayed three times. The first statement in verse 39 says, He went on a little further and he bowed with his face to the ground praying. He he stretches out before the Father. What a picture. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, his face to the ground, pouring out his heart to the Father. Humble, dependent. Friends, we're in good company when we come to the Father that way. Bowing before the Father, stretching out before him. And the first time he prayed was about an hour. Then as you read the text, he checked in with his guys and they were asleep. He's pouring his heart out and he comes back and they're sleeping. I wonder how that felt to Jesus. Oh no, I need you guys. I need you. And he went back and he prayed and they returned again to where his men were. And they were sleeping again. They couldn't keep their eyes open. Now verse 43, he went to pray a third time saying, saying the same things again. Did you see that? saying the same things again. And I'm struck by those words. Do you find yourself saying the same things again and again? Why do we pray repeatedly? Because prayer is also about getting ourselves in a position to hear God and obey God. Maybe prayer is getting us in a place where we're able to surrender to the Father. And it doesn't happen all in one prayer. It often is a journey. It's a journey of persevering prayer where we say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Maybe we need to say, God, I know I've said this so many times. I keep losing it. I, I want to surrender, and I surrendered today, but I've got it back tomorrow, and I just keep losing it. And Lord, I need to come and ask you again. And again, to get me through this. I don't want to just say it. I want to get it out of my head and I want to get it into my heart. And our hearts are strong and stubborn and do not easily let go of their deepest treasures. We move ever so slowly to surrender. It takes time. And you know what prayer does? It changes me. Through the years I've watched people Uh, Move from kind of a set in their way, no way God, to Lord, uh, I don't think this is ever going to change, to continuing to pray and to continue to see God working and to come to appreciation that it may not even get any better. It may not get better, but Lord, I choose to honor you and I choose your direction, and I choose not to worry, and I choose to trust you. You know, that's Garden of Gethsemane stuff. You know, the Garden of Gethsemane is a place to wrestle. 
It's, it comes to me that there needs to be some safe places in which to wrestle. Wrestle our stuff to the ground with God. It's a place to be honest. It's a place to say, this is not what I want. And it's hard to imagine doing this your way, Father. I love what a man called Haddon Robinson wrote. And you'll have to listen carefully to this. Where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Not in Pilate's hall, nor on his way to Golgotha. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He writes, had I been there and witnessed that struggle, I would have worried about the future. If he's so broken up with all he's doing and when all he's doing is praying, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage and his three friends fell apart and fell away. Gethsemane is a hard place, but it prepares us for what is coming and how God wants to work in our lives. And when we have worked through Gethsemane, it allows us to go forward to meet the challenges of our lives. So what do we need in Gethsemane? We need a few, a few key people who love us and support us and are with us and who stand there. And we need surrendered hearts where we come to a point of saying, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And we need persevering hearts, wrestling and struggling and praying the prayer again and again until we find his peace and his way. Martha Schnell Nicholson, uh, this lady, was a bedridden invalid for, who suffered from four incurable diseases. She struggled with pain for over 35 years. And being an invalid for many years, her loving husband, whom she depended upon, died suddenly. Through all of her pain and suffering came these words, and you've probably heard this little poem before, which exalt our Savior. Pain knocked upon my door and said that she had come to stay. And though I would not welcome her, but bid her go away, she entered in like my own shade, she followed after me, and from her stabbing, stinging sword, no moment was I free. And then one day another knocked most gently at my door. I cried, no, pain is living here. There is no room for more. And then I heard his tender voice, "'Tis I, be not afraid, and from the day he entered in, all the difference he has made. For though he did not bid her leave, my strange, unwelcome guest, he taught me how to live with her. Oh, I had never guessed that we could dwell so secretly, so sweetly here, my Lord and pain and I, within this fragile house of clay, while years slip slowly by. Lord, I'm reminded this morning of that old hymn, uh, Lest I Forget Gethsemane, Lest I Forget Thy Love for Me, Lest I Forget Thine Agony, 
lead me to Calvary. Lord, thank you for this passage uh, in your word today. Thank you that it gives us uh, such an honest picture of your heart, dear Jesus. We have no words to express our gratitude that you went through Gethsemane, that you paid the awful price of taking our sin upon yourself. We have no idea. But we love you, Lord Jesus, precious Savior of the world, our Lord and our King, our forgiver, our suffering servant. Thank you for speaking to us today. In Jesus' name.